0: Hey guys, this is the Covenant Courses Podcast. My name's Weston Brown, and we're currently in a study called Logos Foundations of Effective Bible Study. And over the last few weeks, we've been digging into the nature of the Bible itself. What is it? How did we get it? And today we're going to be talking about something called textual criticism, which is the process by which uh, we gain a sense of confidence that the Bible is what it has always been been so today taylor and i are going to unpack that for you as always be sure to check out our syllabus and uh, follow along with some of the course reading and um, uh, let's get into this week's conversation and hope you find it helpful You know, one of the big questions that we've been asking uh, from the beginning has been, how uh, did we get the Bible, and how do we know that the Bible that we have today is what it has always been? Like, how do we know it's accurate? How do we know it's been faithfully transmitted? You know, because as we've said, this is something that's not just hundreds of years old. it means it's literally thousands of years old. Yeah. And so how can we have any sense of confidence that what we have is accurate, um, not only because of just the the amount of time that's passed, but also the fact that this is not something that we necessarily interact with in the original languages. It's a translation, and, um, you know, in a lot of cases, it's sort of a translation of a translation. Um, and so the answer that we've given is something called textual criticism. And we've mentioned that in some previous episodes. And uh, we're going to dig into that today, Taylor, to hopefully get a better understanding. And I do want to sort of preface all of this by just, you know, pointing out the obvious, which is that you and I are not <laughs> scholars of textual criticism. Like oh, this is a yeah. an intricate um, and highly specialized field of study. You may be more than me. I'm, I'm no. only vaguely familiar with it, so I can't wait to ask questions. Um so we're going to dig into it a little bit today, but uh, I I, w- I will say that I think that at best we're going to be giving sort of a thirty thousand foot overview of of what this is and and very much a layman's sort of understanding um, of how all this works. And um, maybe the best place for us to start is to go back to the ideas of inerrancy and infallibility that we talked about in previous episodes. And if you remember. Uh, One of the things we said was that inerrancy, biblical inerrancy, which again means that the Bible is without error, and infallibility, which means that it is incapable of error, that those terms don't necessarily apply to the copy of the Bible that you have at home. Right. But instead, when scholars use those terms for the scriptures, what they're really talking about are the original manuscripts of the Bible. Um, or what are often called the autographs of Scripture. The original um, written documents, um, whether they were written on you know, animal skin or papyrus or, or whatever, those, those original manuscripts of the books of the Bible um, are considered to be the very Word of God, as we talked about in our previous episode, and are considered to be inerrant and infallible. But as we've said, the problem is is that none of those autographs still exist. Um, The word scholars will use is the word extant. There there are no longer any of these manuscripts extant. They're all extinct, right? Mm -hmm. They're all gone. Um, And um, we start there because uh, biblical scholar Daniel Wallace, who is a professor over at Dallas Seminary... Um, thinks that that's not strange at all, that we would be in a position of saying, hey, w- with something as as not just like popular, but as as widely known as the Bible, as widely copied as the Bible, that we, we wouldn't have those original documents. He thinks that's as it should be, because um, not only were these things written on materials that were degrading or mm-hmm. degradable, animal skin, you know, paper, you know, like papyrus, like, um, but but also when you consider how much the books of the Bible have been copied, you're talking about, especially with the original documents, documents that were being handled over and over and over and over and over, and over again. And one of the things we'll see today is that the Bible is one of the most, if not the most copied work in human history. Right. So um, all that to say, we don't have the original manuscripts. That's not scandalous in any way, shape, or form. You know, it's, that's true of any ancient document that is of the same age. Um, but what we do have in existence today are copies of those original documents. And the big question is just how in the world, um, especially when you consider the fact that things were being copied by human hands, how in the world can we say that we have any level of confidence that the Bible we have today is the same as when it was originally written? Right. And so um, so let's dig into this a little bit, this idea of textual criticism. Um, I'll start, Taylor, with a quote from uh, a guy named Dr. Brandon Crow, and he just gives a little bit of context to what we mean when we say textual criticism. That word criticism... Uh, can rub people the wrong way, but but he says it doesn't mean that we're criticizing the text of Scripture. Meaning we're not um, we're not being critical of what's actually written in the pages of Scripture when we talk about textual criticism. Instead, he says textual criticism of the Bible has nothing inherently to do with like critiquing the Bible. Instead, textual criticism means thinking critically about manuscripts. And variations in the biblical texts found in those manuscripts, in order to identify the original reading of the Bible. Right. So, so let me just let me just say that again as sort of a foundational statement to um, provide us with uh, some footing today. Textual criticism means thinking critically about manuscripts, not necessarily what's in the manuscripts, but but the manuscripts themselves, and on some level, what's in and variations in the biblical text found in those manuscripts in order to identify the original reading of the Bible. Is that, does that seem clear to you? I think so. So, <laughs> uh, Right, yeah. Big,
1: big caveat there. So, okay, so what we're trying to do, we're saying, we don't have the original scroll on which the book of Genesis was written. Right. But we've got a bunch of copies of Genesis over the years. So what we want to do with all these copies is see how many similarities and also see where the variations are to get as close as we can to what the original, the absolute original text of the book of Genesis was mm-hmm. just by by this process of criticism. So by looking at everything that matches up as well as whatever doesn't match up in these texts and ruling all of that out until we feel like we have the purest version. That's right. That's okay, right. so we're trying to work our way backwards to... The original text. I imagine the number of copies and the the date that we can trace them to probably matter. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think what we'll see is that there are several things that are of um, significance, and we'll walk through these in more detail in a moment, but um, one one question is, with the manuscripts that we have, what is the quality of those manuscripts, meaning what kind of shape are they in? Um, so, like, just physically. Yeah, physically, and, and are they... Um, you know, quality also meaning like, do we know where these things came from? Are they like reliable sources historically? Um, uh, so the the quality of the manuscript matters. The second piece would be the quantity of the manuscript. How many how many other manuscripts can we like? How many manuscripts can we sort of proverbially lay out on the floor and compare and contrast? Sure. Um, And then the third piece, which you mentioned, is just the age, um, so the time interval. um, And and by time interval, we don't just mean how old is this manuscript, we mean how long is the gap between when the original manuscript was written and when this copy was written. Gotcha. So obviously, you want that gap to be as small as possible. Sure. If, If the original text of... You know, Ephesians was written, you know, say 70 A.D. or something like that, and the earliest copy that we have isn't until 1542. That's an enormous gap, yeah. right? So that that's just a you know a hypothetical, but um, so yeah, those are the three big um, areas that we're looking at when we look at the copies of Scripture that we have. So textual criticism is the process of taking all the copies of a text and comparing them together so as to arrive at the best understanding of what the text actually said. And so um, how many copies are there, you know, exactly? That's, That's a question that we're asking as a part of all of this. And the reality is, is that, as I said earlier, the Bible is one of the most copied, if not the most copied work of literature in human history. And when you compare it to other ancient books, manuscripts, um, even very, very famous books and manuscripts, the Bible blows them out of the water. Hmm. Um, So, for example, um, with the New Testament, uh, we have over 5,000 copies, ancient copies of the New Testament still in existence today. Wow. Um, and I've seen I've seen a few different numbers for you know like exactly how many uh, copies are still in existence today. Um, but but you know five thousand fifty three hundred fifty five hundred. I think I've even seen like six thousand um, out there. So needless to say, there are many thousands of copies yeah. of the New Testament. Um, if you take another ancient work um which would actually be earlier than the new testament something like the iliad by homer um, one of the most famous works of literature in human history Um, we only have a little over 600 copies still in existence today Um, so that would be uh, just the number the quantity that we have if you think about the new testament um, the copies that we have, and, and I mentioned the time interval factor, um, the time between the original manuscripts and the copies we have in existence today, among those 5,000 plus copies, we're talking about a gap from, of anywhere from like 50 years to 200 years.
1: Okay, so this means we have copies of New Testament books or the entirety of the New Testament canon That were made within a lifetime of the original canon being written. Correct. Yeah. In existence. Yeah. That's
0: pretty cool. So still incredibly old. Yeah. Um, But the, the theory there is that because these are copies and were not the original documents, that they would not perhaps necessarily have been handled quite as much as the original and so have had more longevity.
1: Okay. Um, but because they were not the originals, that's why we're going to apply this mm-hmm. textual criticism to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. okay.
0: And just to be clear, like when when we say copies, um, it's it's all over the map. So a copy does not necessarily mean that we have a, a like bound uh, book that is Matthew through Revelation, right, right? Um, because, as we've said in previous episodes, it's not until the 300s that those things are essentially codified, um, or as we say, canonized as the New Testament. Okay. Um, so when we say we have copies, it it might be whole books. In some cases, it it might be a fragment of a book. Yeah. Um, but it but it's a piece of the puzzle. Right? Okay. Does that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, we have those ancient copies anywhere from 50 years from the time of their writing to around 200 years after. Again, if you consider the Iliad, um, the earliest copies that we have uh, date to about 400 years after the original writing of the Iliad. So if you're comparing the New Testament and the Iliad, you have a much longer gap of time in between the original writing and the earliest copies that we have. Um, and we have far fewer copies of those as well. And you know, what's interesting to me is I don't ever hear anybody asking, Hmm, I wonder if the Iliad is what it's supposed to be. Right. I want, I wonder if it's been faithfully transmitted all of these years, you know, um, or any other ancient book, uh, the Odyssey, another one by Homer. Um, and, and there are some, you know, things by Plato. Yeah. Um, like things that are still studied and read today. um, Many of those things, such as uh, Plato's collected works, um, there are only about seven of those in existence today, uh, originally written somewhere around 400 BC. Um, The earliest copies that we have date to 1300 years after the original documents were written by Plato. Um, so huge span of time in between, far fewer copies, and so with with the New Testament, especially, we really have the ability to like lay these things out, and um, put the earliest you know copies that we have in one corner, so to speak, and put the later ones in another corner, and then compare and contrast um, yeah. what all of these things say.
1: And what we're looking for when we do this is how the text either has or has not changed over time
0: yeah 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 so the word that um, textual critics use is the word variant Um, so what we said is in those original manuscripts or the autographs that they were without error or free from error capable of error Um, but with copies there are variants (laughs) and and in some cases there are just outright errors Right. Yeah. Um, have you ever
1: copied anything off a board? Yeah. In that's school right. and never made a mistake.
0: So, um, and 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 so, when textual critics talk about variants, they are that might include errors, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's an error. So, so for example, as um, as a, a work gets copied, especially as it gets translated yeah. into other languages. Um, you know, I've heard things like the, the name John could be spelled in different ways, or the name Mary could be spelled in different ways. And so among all of the copies that are out there, there are differences, um, or discrepancies, or in some cases, you know, just outright errors. Like there's a line that's missing or a word that's missing, or, you know, something was genuinely incorrectly, um, copied, um. I, I do think, though, that most historians, even even non-Christian historians would say that a great amount of care was put into the copying of documents, not yeah. just Holy Scripture, but just documents in general, and that it was a highly specialized field. Um, that, uh, you know, had a lot of uh, rules and restrictions that came along with it. Okay. Um, and so, you know, because this is how information was passed down before the printing press. Mm-hmm. It was either oral or it was handwritten, and so great care was taken um, So with all of that. So, yeah, man. Um, so, we have the number of copies in existence. We have the time between the writing and the earliest copies, and um, and and then yeah, just the um, the overall quality of the manuscripts in general. Um, let's we've talked about the New Testament a little bit. Maybe let's talk about the Old Testament a little bit, okay. and 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 let's just kind of walk through these categories of of quantity, quality, and time interval as it relates to the Old Testament, because you know. Big shock, the Old Testament's older. Yeah. Um, so we have fewer copies of sure. the Old Testament, as as you would expect, just because of time. Um, with the quality of the manuscripts for the Old Testament, um, very few copies. Um, again, it's because of what they were made out of, what they were written on. Um, certainly animal skins deteriorate. Um, even things that were written on clay tablets and things like that, you know, easily get broken, destroyed over time. Um, also, you know, some people will point out that the Old Testament was written by a a, a somewhat nomadic people, people who are conquered multiple times, people Mm -hmm. who are carried into exile and things like that. Um, and so of course that has an effect on the, uh, the number of copies that are out there and the quality of those copies that are available. And so, um, for the Old Testament, um, what the information that I found is that we have around six ancient copies written in Hebrew. Um, there are later copies written in Greek, which was probably the first thing that the, the words of the old Testament were translated into. Um, and so there are, there are far more of that what's called the Septuagint. Um, but, uh, but in terms of just like really early copies in Hebrew, um, less than 10. And um, the time interval with those copies is uh, somewhere um, <laughs> it's a big gap because the the Old Testament, you know, was written over a much longer period of time. So we have some that were written within 300 years of the original documents and others that could be as old as 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. So it, it is a bit of a wider gap. But this
1: one doesn't, this one doesn't surprise me as much um because rabbis and rabbinic schools were known for their methods of memorizing and translating all of this information orally right so does that does that line up with the fact that we've only got six of these copies left if most of what they did in school most of what your israelite children did as they were growing up was basically
0: memorize your scripture mm, yeah yeah no i mean i think that, that that's a great point to be made uh but i mean the biggest piece here is just the 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 length of time i think and um yeah i mean just these things only will last for so long right um and so so yeah i i mean other than that i don't i don't really know um the dead sea scrolls which we've talked about before were a significant thing uh dead sea scrolls uh were found in 1947 in the Middle East, and in a cave. And um, it was a major archaeological find, because it unearthed more than a 100 copies of books of the Old Testament that have been dated from everywhere from 200 BC to 68 BC. Um, And Miller Burroughs, who was a professor at Yale, who had a hand in the discovery and like translating um, some of the things that were found, said at the time, he said, it's a matter of wonder that through something like a thousand years, the text underwent so little alteration. Hmm. Um, and, And that's, I mean, that's a significant thing. Um, because this isn't necessarily a uh you know like a Christian pastor right who's trying to make this claim this is a an academic who is looking over this massive archaeological find and going how incredible is it that the the text of the Old Testament that we have today matches so closely what we have found in 1947 yeah um when such a such a huge span of time has passed, um, so he marveled at that at the time, and the Dead Sea Scroll manuscripts are um, you know like nearly identical to those dating to 500 AD or 1300 AD. Hmm. and it just goes to show you how faithfully things were transmitted over time. Yeah, do we have any
1: insight into how all of this I mean how all of this went down?
0: How the Dead Sea Scrolls were found? Well, no, not necessarily
1: that, but how, what are the copying processes that somebody, that, that a text that large, right, spanning this, just mm-hmm. this much, not only time, but actual text, yeah. gets copied so meticulously over thousands of years?
0: Yeah, so I, I know that with uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, you, you know I mean? So you have, you have groups of people who are dedicated to this work of transcription. Um, and the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls are an example of a particular tribe of people who took great care to transmit these things over time. And, um, you know, the things that I've read before are things like, you know, if, if, if I'm, if I'm copying a, a document and I realize I've made a mistake, it's not like I'm going to scratch that out and just continue on. It's like we're literally going to burn this. Oh, wow. You know, this, this, even though I've done all this other work that's accurate, we're going to burn this whole page and start over hmm. um, because it's that important that, uh, you know, that we be faithful to it. And so, um, you know, the bottom line with all of that is the Dead Sea Scrolls give us a level of confidence that our copies are really close to the original documents. And I mean, to some extent, there's it's a confidence that we can have about no other text that's that yeah. old. We just don't have the number of examples of any other text that we have of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Yeah. Um, so are there variants? Yeah, there are variants. And um, translators and scholars have to make decisions about what to do with some of those variants. Um, and, and probably one of the best known, and Taylor, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, but one of the best known is the end of the Gospel of Mark.
1: Right. So yeah.
0: um, there's a little tale on the end of the Gospel of Mark where um, a good Bible will tell you, it'll give you a little asterisk or set this text apart, and will tell you that the earliest manuscripts do not contain this section.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's 16 verses tacked on to Mark uh, chapter 16, mm-hmm. and yeah, that was that was kind of a a cause for concern, I guess, early in my faith journey. Like, what's going on here? That we've got we've got this text, and it's in the Bible, but these folks are telling me, "Hey, this was not in some of our earliest manuscripts." So I guess that's a product of textual criticism being used to come to the light that look, we've got. All of these copies, and in this case, we're, we're in the New Testament, so we've got over 5,000 copies. Most of the ones from our earliest mom- from our earliest discoveries don't have this little bit of right, mark, right. whereas maybe some of the later ones do. Yeah. So in what we've talked about so far, I guess logically we would say these later copies that have it but the early ones that don't, we would want to trust the earlier copies, which is why that note is made in your Bible when you get to Mark 16.
0: That's right. I think, though, it is such a, um, a pervasive thing that is found in the later copies. It's it's part of the reason why it's been included in, in most modern English Bibles today. Yeah. Um, also it does not and, and and i think i mean i mean i've heard like numbers like less than 1% of the variants in uh, the copies that we have affect anything doctrinally okay so we're not
1: talking about people who are going off creating heresies and just <laughs> inserting them into say the gospel of john yeah. but these are misspelled words or a scribe missed a line when he was copying and they didn't notice, stuff right. like that.
0: Right. Uh, so like less than 1% are um, of, of any doctrinal significance. Okay. And so even with something like the end of the Gospel of Mark, um, which talks about um, basically how the apostles will have the ability to do incredible things.
1: Right. Um, Hold snakes, get bitten by snakes without dying and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
0: and um, you, you might go, and 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 some people certainly have have used this in a way that is, um, I think, unfaithful to the teaching of Scripture. But but that's true of even areas of the Bible that are you know like verified yeah. parts of the original text. Like we like we're people are prone to take the Bible and twist it and use it to their own you know their own ends oh surely we don't yeah so oh well yeah i mean so you know the the end of mark 16 is what's used in in, you know like appalachian world to justify like the handling of rattlesnakes right like if you've ever if you've ever seen some of that ridiculousness where people will go hey if if you're actually saved if you're actually a person of faith the bible says hey right here at the end of mark it'll say that you're able to be bitten by snakes and yeah and not die um, one, I think the end of Mark is talking primarily about the about the apostles, and two, we see that exact same thing happen to the uh, apostle Paul. That's right on the island of Malta after he gets shipwrecked, he gets bitten by a snake. It doesn't uh, affect him at all, and the superstitious people of the island think he's a god. Yep. <laughs> you know, so uh, he's like C-3PO, right, and <laughs> Return of the Jedi. Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's a deep. No, that's okay. The Ewoks. Yeah. I think C3PO is a god. Um, so so yeah, it's it's one of those things where it doesn't actually change anything doctrinally. And I think the the comforting thing there for us should be that uh scholars are not trying to hide these things from anybody. Like in in instances where there is a more significant thing like the end of Mark, um like scholars want to make that. Plain to people and where it gets confusing for folks. And this is why we started with talking about inerrancy and infallibility. It gets confusing for folks when they essentially have been taught that no, 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 there are no errors whatsoever in the Bible. Yeah. And then you get presented with something like that and you go, well, wait a second. Is this an error? Like, is this, uh, is this supposed to be in here? Is it not supposed to be in here? We don't have an answer to this. Right. Um, and and what they haven't been, I think, accurately taught is that whenever we talk about no errors or in, in the Bible being incapable of error, we're, we're not talking about these these copies of the Bible that we have. We're talking yeah. about the original text, which is why we're so trying so diligently to get to the original text and to get as close to that as humanly yeah. possible.
1: So as we're recording today, there was recently on, I think, Bible Gateway, maybe, there was a, a partial translation that was taken down mm. due to perceived errors. Mm. So so what we're what we're talking about then is as soon as you've got a translated copy it can't be inerrant because we're fallible humans who are now translating what is effectively a compilation of manuscripts that also were not
0: the original manuscript. Yeah. Yeah, and translation is like a whole other animal in a way. Like like it is it is like a separate discipline in a way from textual criticism because with textual criticism scholars are not necessarily trying to translate the text into another language.
1: Sure, they're just making sure it was as they, pure they, as possible.
0: That's right. They they're they're looking at all of these different copies and um, you know putting them together like a jigsaw puzzle in a way, but but looking at the ways that they are the same and the ways that they're different. Um, from there, you know, once once a, once a text is arrived at, from there it gets translated into other languages. And you're right. I mean, even translating into English can be tricky, and it's one of the reasons why we have so many different English translations of the Bible. Um, is there are there are some areas of scripture where um, it's 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 just not uh, clear if the Greek of the New Testament in certain places is if, if there's a, a true like analogous word or phrase for what is being described right um, one that we talk about here at, at Covenant Shreveport a lot is uh, the Greek word anamnesis um, which is the word that gets translated as remembrance when Jesus says do this in remembrance of me and you know it's it's one of those words that is like pregnant with a, like a deep, a deep sort of rich meaning that the word remembrance in and of itself doesn't maybe fully get at, mm-hmm. because when we think of remembrance, we just think of remembering. We yeah, think, like oh, oh yeah, I had a sandwich yesterday for lunch. Yeah, I, I recall, yeah. you know, that two years ago we went on vacation to the beach. Um, Anamnesis, though, is is more like um, like the. Uh, you know, like if you walk into someone's house and you smell something that like suddenly like takes you back to your childhood at your grandparents' house. Like you have, I have this visceral experience where I smell a particular scent and all of a sudden like I'm mentally transported back to a time and place. Like that, that's a little bit more what anamnesis is getting mm-hmm. at. Um, It's not just, oh, I recalled suddenly my my grandparents' house. It's like, no, I had some sort of visceral experience that took me back. Yeah. Which is, I think, what communion is supposed to be. It's what the Passover was supposed to be. It was like these elements are meant to not just jog our memory, but they're meant to be these these sort of – these very kind of physical things for Hmm. us. Yeah. that take us to a different place in time.
1: be an example of where just pure translation from one language to another kind of fails you because there's a word for it mm-hmm. there's a there is a word that you can use from the Greek to the English but it just doesn't doesn't capture the which again it doesn't capture the full scope so do you yeah. try to just translate the word or do you try to capture the thought which brings us into another conversation entirely
0: that's right um, so uh, we'll stick with the task at hand <laughs> yeah. Because there are there are there are a lot of different areas of scripture um, that we could look at, and maybe we will at some point. But um, and just compare and contrast the English translations. Oh yeah, right. And um, and you can you can find a lot of different um, perspectives on things. Um, So that's that's the Old Testament. You know, like we um, we. Oh boy! (laughs) Yeah, all the way back around. Uh, That's the Old Testament. You know, we have uh, fewer copies than the New Testament. Uh, There is a wider gap uh, of time between when they were written and the earliest copies that we have. The Dead Sea Scrolls were a really important find because they gave us even more copies. And some of the copies that were uh, found in the Dead Sea Scroll trove were uh, much newer. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, uh, quality, not as great as New Testament copies, not as great as the New Testament time interval can be longer than the New Testament. Um, the New Testament is, uh, just a whole other ball, ball game because it was written in such a short span of time. And, um, I mean, it, it is written alongside the birth of the church, right? So you have this commission from Christ to go make disciples of all nations. Part of that commission is, remember, to teach them all things I've commanded you. Mm-hmm. So the gospel accounts and the writings of the apostles are, um, are thought by the early church to be to be that, to be the carrying out of what Christ has commanded. And so as the church is birthed uh, and and as literally as individual churches are birthed in different places. One, it's remarkable. It is remarkable how quickly it happens. Um, Like, I mean, how, how we go from uh, Jesus being crucified in Jerusalem to just a, you know, just a little bit later, the apostle Paul is able to travel to Rome and find a Christian church in existence in Rome. That's right. Um, and so, like it, like it is amazing how quickly this spreads um, and it takes over uh, the Mediterranean, the Middle East, that area. And so, um, when we get to the New Testament, these things are being copied um, at at great length. Um, and these copies are being sent out to all of these new churches that are being planted. Um, And so, as we said earlier, today we have over 5,000 copies of uh, the Greek New Testament, like the New Testament in its original language, um, ranging from the early 2nd century AD to the 16th century AD. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's a massive span of time, um, but... There are so many copies, yeah. Um, and and then when you start talking about the translations, remember the Old Testament, there was one significant translation, the Septuagint. The it was the Hebrew translated into Greek. But with the New Testament, I mean, we have copies in Arabic. We have copies in Latin. Um, Latin becomes a big thing, uh, and you have something called the Vulgate, mm-hmm. um, ultimately, which is the Latin translation. Um, you have Coptic translations, and so if you take all of those ancient translations into account, we have something like 25,000 early manuscripts of the New Testament. Um, And just looking at the Greek manuscripts, 10 to 15 of those copies date within the first 100 years after the original was written, so really short span of time. Um, And maybe 50 or so of those date within the first 200 years. Hmm. Um, So yeah, um, we've talked a little bit about how that compares to some of the other ancient works that are still known and used today. Um, one, one very famous um, book is, is the book called Annals that was written by the Roman historian Tacitus. So it is a, a history, and um, it would have been somewhat contemporary with the New Testament. And we only have one copy of Annals dating to the ninth century. So 800 years after it was originally written, we have one copy. Hmm. Um, uh, the Greek writer Euripides, um, who is very well known, we have about 300 fragments from his writings. And the earliest of those are from around 700 years after he lived and wrote. Wow. So... Um, this this I don't think is surprising at all to anybody, considering uh, the explosion of Christianity that took place um, following the first century, and the fact that it was a missionary effort. The the fact that it spread out so rapidly, um, I don't think it's surprising that we have as many as we have today. But but also it's worth pointing out that because the church has always considered this to be holy scripture for the most part great care has been taken with it right to preserve yeah. it and you know as churches got copies to to really you know like you know encase them in glass so to speak you right know, to protect them so so yeah um the New Testament has not just like 10x or 100x but like a thousand X as many manuscripts as the average classical author um so. And those
1: classical authors, what we do have, we would say is fairly reliable, even though we've got yeah one or one yeah. or ten or yeah, a couple yeah. dozen.
0: Yeah, we don't really question it, right? Yeah, we don't question it. Um, and the only reason we question it, or, or or people would question it with the work of scripture, is because of the claim that's made of it, right? It, you know, absolutely. With with you know, the annals by Tacitus, no one's. No one's like claiming that this is the word of God yeah. or Holy Scripture. So I think that's why uh, questions arise. Uh, so that's just sort of the, the quantity of the New Testament. In terms of the quality, I'll quote two scholars, uh, Gary Phillips, William Brown. And uh, what they say is it is true uh, that the quality of the New Testament manuscripts is less than that of the Old Testament ones, hmm. more variant readings do exist, although the, these are usually matters of spelling or word order, not matters of doctrine. So this this to me is just logical. We, we don't have an abundance of copies of the Old Testament, yeah, but the ones we do have really agree with each other. We have a massive amount of copies of the New Testament, and I think due to the sheer volume um, of these, there are more variants among the text. And remember that variants doesn't necessarily mean errors in the text. Um, You know, like what they mentioned was uh, a lot of the times these variants are matters of spelling or they're matters of word order. Um, it's it's just a difference that we see, mm-hmm. um, and that's true in our Bibles today. Like if you took an ESV Bible and a New American Standard Bible and a King James Bible and a you know NIV Bible and you opened all of them all up to the same passage of Scripture, you could go through and find variants, right. right? Because these things have been translated in different ways. Would that be textual criticism? In a way, yeah. yeah. I mean, like at, at a very base level, sure. like that's what's happening. It would be you taking English copies, um, and just you know taking a pen and noting all of the differences that you find among them. So you can do this at home. Yeah, in a way. So, uh, so yeah, the 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 quality is less, perhaps, in that there there I- there is more variation among the various copies. Yeah, um, but. But there are so many copies. It's just sheer volume. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, and then finally, you know, just the time interval. And we've already touched on this a little bit, but the time interval for the New Testament is unusually short yeah. for ancient writings. I mentioned Euripides and Tacitus, and the earliest copies we have are hundreds and hundreds of years after the time that they were originally written. Um, and so the time interval for the New Testament is just sort of uncommonly short. Um, some of our manuscripts are from the third and fourth centuries. Others date to within a hundred years of the estimated date of the original manuscript, um, and so I mean that's incredible. Yeah. So, so that I mean, in a nutshell, uh, <laughs> that, that's textual criticism, <laughs> and I'm sure true textual critics are rolling over in their graves right now um, at our at our um, you know our description of this. But Yeah, but
1: there's probably a lot of other people who are already
0: bored by the nerdiness of it. <laughs> yes. Um, I love it. Yeah, I mean, I guess the big takeaway here is that uh, a lot of really smart people um, have spent a lot of time and effort and energy not only um, assembling all of these things, but um, a great amount of time, and, and not just like in the last hundred years, but over an extended period of time has gone into preserving these things and, and seeking to faithfully transmit. And, and that's, what's interesting about some of this is like, you don't have to be a Christian yeah. to want to faithfully transmit these documents. You, you just have to be like an academic, historically minded person. You know, b- because it's like I don't have to be a fan of Homer to want the content of the Iliad to be faithfully transmitted over right. time. Like you're just like, well, this is this is what we want to get to the bottom of what he actually wrote for, even if just for the sheer purpose of historical preservation. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, like th- I think that's a, a comfort as well in all of this is that um, there's such a large number of people that have engaged in this work. Um, across generations, across nations, languages, over time, and um, you know, there's there's not really room here for somebody to go, hey, I'm gonna add an extra page to right. the Book of First Corinthians.
1: Yeah, um, that's the coolest part of this for me. Is there are a lot of historians and academics today that the more they research, the more we're finding out there were historians and academics back then, and sure. the the earlier the copies are discovered we realize yeah these folks were doing the same thing and just trying to
0: preserve the text as best they could yeah yeah so taylor what do you think are some questions that come up for folks as they listen to some of this stuff or as they're you know asking some of their some of these questions about the bible some of these bigger questions
1: yeah so the the biggest one i guess would be like kind of kind of what we started with which is how do we how do we trust the text that we have or how yeah. do we trust the translation that we have is coming from a proper text, which I would hope some of this helps to answer that with just the the immense care that was taken over time and the the very minor changes that were made throughout thousands of years for these texts. But I don't know, maybe it's Maybe I'm just too accepting that I'm, I can't come up with any questions on the fly, or maybe I'm yeah. just
0: still ruminating over well, all these. you know, part of the deal here, and as we talked about before, is the Bible's still a book that demands your faith. Right. right? Um, and in our last episode, um, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about some of the theories of how the Bible was written. Like, how is God the author of the Scripture when human beings seem to be the author? Authors of the Scripture, and um, and yeah, so when it comes to textual criticism and the faithful transmission of the Bible, um, you know we can explore this in depth, and we can feel a great sense of confidence that things have been transmitted faithfully. But yet at the same time, it's still a book that demands our faith. Yeah, um, and it still does call us to um, to not trust it the book for salvation like the bible like the man, the artifact of the bible is not salvific that's right but the message it contains is so yeah. we we don't want to fall into the trap of being biblicists you know like this this trap of looking at the bible as some sort of salvific device hmm. but but rather that um the message of the gospel that we find in its pages and the story of God's revelation of Himself to humanity and His plan of restoration through Christ—that these are things that are are truly a treasure, and um, and not in a a purely, you know, um, not in just the sense of being classic literature, right. but in in a cosmic way as well.
1: I will say this is very helpful, just on the historical side, because I've had some questions from folks just even recently um where the 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 hypothetical is kind of posited that you know isn't isn't what we have just the translation of the translation of the translation and you can google a little bit and try to piece together an answer to that and say no we we really have some copies that are very close to the original but when you start from the position of we don't have the originals that that does bring up a question and so Seeing something like textual criticism over just this massive amount of time, it's a super comforting thing for me.
0: Sure, yeah. And and people are always going to argue about it, right? Like, like it's impossible yeah. that you would have something like this that, that gets translated into other languages and not have people argue over the translation. Um, and so it's one of the reasons why, um, you know, if this is something that you're really interested in and you want to explore at great depth, that you start digging into some of the original languages. And and I would recommend to start with Greek. And to start with the New Testament, it's far easier than Hebrew. Um, and there are a lot of great tools out there to help you. You, know, you don't have to become fluent in Greek. You don't right. have to speak Greek or anything like that. Um, and certainly the Koine Greek of the New Testament is sort of its own unique thing. Um, but it is something that there, I mean, there are plenty of tools out there that are available, and we can link to some of those and books out there that are available that can help you learn a little bit more about it. And, and, and just for me personally, um, you know, learning more about Greek when I was in seminary and studying Greek um, was really helpful to me to see how we got what we have today in terms of English translations. Yeah. Um, and it helped me to better understand why there are some variations within the English translations as well. And we've talked about that some in previous episodes as well, of like the, the range of translations that are out there and how some are more word for word, some are more thought for thought, some are mm-hmm. more paraphrases. Is and, that where we're headed next? Um, no, oh, it's not actually. How fun. <laughs> what are we doing next? Well, next we're gonna get into the question of how do we study this book, Okay, right? We've built a little bit of a foundation now for uh, what the Bible is. Um, and from here, the real question is, what do we do with it? You know, now that we know what it is, where it came from, now that hopefully we can feel a sense of confidence that what we have is accurate. How do I engage with it in a way that's meaningful to me? Okay. So that's, uh, that's where we're headed. And, um, I'm looking forward to getting into all that with you guys. So, uh, y'all catch us next time. Uh, we'll be back next week and, uh, we look forward to, uh, joining you guys then. We'll see you.